Malcolm Honline is live in Jerusalem, Israel. He is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Shalom, Yerushalayim. Shalom to you. Uh, describe it for us, Ma- Malcolm. Obviously, uh, there's great concern, the collective Jewish heart, especially if this audience is always pointed to Jerusalem. We're wondering how our brothers and sisters are doing. Give us your assessment uh, since you've landed. Hotels are packed. The uh, streets are not, but there are, there are plenty of people around. There are groups around. There are a lot of simchas being celebrated here. The weather is beautiful. And I hope people will come. Don't give in. This is, uh, you know, again, it's very isolated, the attacks. And it's, you don't sense that there aren't troops all over the streets and, and people to, to uh, you know, guarding the uh, different locations. There's a greater sense of awareness and heightened state of, state of alert, no doubt. But that's all. That's all is right, and hopefully the simple message <clears throat> of making sure to keep those trips that are on everyone's calendar and schedule there, hopefully that message will resonate and come through. Okay, we know what happened this week. There was a meeting between the Prime Minister and the President of the United States in the White House. I know that in terms of the meeting reviews, it seems this memo of understanding that you've described to us, the renewal of it, was a major focus. And we'll get to that in a second because I have a couple of questions on it. But but you know what else was on the agenda? Do you know what other topics were covered between the president and the prime minister? Well, obviously, Iran was uh, the primary issue and the growth of their aggressive activities in the region. The situation in Syria was occupied a very big part of, of the discussion. And, of course, you know, the danger to Israel's borders and what America will do and, and the increasing American role in, in these countries, including in Iraq. The... Um, uh, big issue was the memo memorandum of understanding which is the next 10 years of american aid military aid as you know there was an mod uh, mou a memo of understanding that governed the three billion dollars that israel got each year and military aid they do not get economic aid anymore and now they're looking because it will expire in a few months or next year that they will they're looking now for a commitment that will carry over, and that they sign an agreement. Uh, the reports are that it's up to five billion. Yeah, but let, let's start. Let's start with that for let's 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 start with that for a second, because it always seemed to me that this contribution, this investment that the United States would make in Israel, was sort of a set amount each time. Is this unusual for Israel to make this pitch for an increase, or it always goes on? No, it's only, well, the 10 years were fixed, and the next 10 years will be fixed at this at whatever amount is agreed upon. But because of the changes in the aftermath of the Iran deal and the fact that tens of billions of dollars can be released by them for Hezbollah, Hamas, the increasing weapon supply that's going on, the changing situation in, in Syria and Lebanon, all of these increase the burden on Israel. So the mm-hmm. aid will be reflective of the new realities. Uh, and once it's negotiated, that carries for it. That doesn't mean that Israel and the United States don't reach other understandings like they did for Iron Dome, where money was allocated for the joint research by both countries that resulted in Iron Dome and David Sling. Right. Um, it, it seems that, unless I'm reading the wrong news sources, it seems everything went relatively smoothly. Smoothly, uh, no slightings, no, uh, no, uh, you know, uh, no protocol uh, violations when it came to this meeting between the prime minister 
and the president. Uh, with that in mind, assuming in fact it did go smoothly, should we assume that the talk regarding Iran went smoothly? And even though they completely disagreed, obviously, about the Iran deal, still there is a strong measure of cooperation between these two leaders when it comes to what Iran could do potentially in the region? Well, that's not clear because we don't know what happened in the meeting when these discussions took place. Clearly, both sides now have to focus and, and work together, hopefully, on the implementation. And we're seeing that Iran is moving in the wrong direction even since the meeting and, and certainly before it with the missile launch, for which there has not been accountability. And I'm sure that the prime minister raised that, that, that there's been no price to pay in the message at that uh, sense. But they also announced this week that they're not dismantling any centrifuges, and I hear that they never did. It's not that they're stopping. It's Danny mm-hmm. Hoyer, the Democratic whip of the House, and others have put out statements attacking them uh, over their reneging on the commitments and not living up to the expectations. The question is what, what price will be paid? And when we see um, that Rouhani, the president, the quote, moderate president right. of Iran, <laughs> demands that U.S. apologize and everything is done, and then and correct their their uh, mistakes and and uh, take steps that they outline, plus the nine things that Khamenei has demanded uh, of the United States. It's clear that they are trying to either both satisfy some of the domestic forces, but more importantly, is it raises the question of whether they have any intention of living up to the agreement. Right. And it was believed that that was unlikely before. Now, I think good reason to. Um, to have consideration, and the IEA has to give a report on the findings of whether they're in compliance by December 15th, and uh, and Khamenei himself getting involved, talking about these nine preconditions uh, before they adopt, and, and others saying that they will never dismantle anything, and really uh, should have evoked a much different response. To go to the first question, the optics of the meetings were very good, is the Joint statements and everything, right? But there was a two-hour meeting. There were a lot of issues. Some pay, some newspapers report that they were more tense. Others say less. But it's clear that at least the perception, which is equally important, about how countries in the region view the strength of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Right, that's true. And, and I guess in that regard, there's no reason to suspect that it, it wasn't a good impression, right? That it right. Okay. Now, um, essentially, what you're saying regarding Iran. And meaning in terms of the United States discussion with Israel this week, we don't know what happened in the meeting. Would you bet, would you conjecture, because you know more about this than any of us, that there is still an attitude of we'll have your back or we got your back if, God forbid, you know, Iran acts up in an irresponsible way? Or we're not at that stage yet in these discussions where the United States or its leader are ready, is ready to make that type of commitment even privately to the prime minister? Well, the president made it publicly, and he's made some pretty good statements, uh, strong statements in this regard, and also in regard to um, the stabbings and violence for the first time. They didn't equate, they didn't say, you know, both sides must. He, was, he issued a very strong condemnation of, uh, of the incitement of the activities that the, the Palestinian attacks against uh, Israel, which is, should be the norm, it shouldn't be the exception, uh, and hopefully we'll see other leaders follow suit, quite the opposite of what we are seeing now, and, and especially with the European action this week. Yeah. Um, so the the question is whether not whether they have Israel's front. They're back, but we want to see them have Israel's front. Right. And that means to be out front in, in the message about what will, will be tolerated and not tolerated. The 
Prime Minister certainly raised the question of the Russians bombing, getting closer to the Israeli border, what it means for the Iranians, the uh, IRGC, Basijis, others uh, being near Israel or coming into the Golan area, some of the uh, aspirations that they um, uh, have expressed about taking the Golan. And there are reports that the Prime Minister may have raised the Golan and talked about extending Israeli sovereignty. I, I, I for one, doubt that that was, in fact, what uh, he discussed. Yeah. I'm sure they discussed security in the Golan. Yeah. I'm going to get back to the Golan in a second. I want to ask you, on the memo of understanding, so somebody has to go from the U.S. to Israel to assess the security needs, right, at this point. In other words, he makes the pitch, the Prime Minister, and now a representative from the U.S., or many, I don't know if it's a committee, you could tell us, goes and, from what I read, assesses the security needs. This is not simply relying on what Israel tells them. They go and investigate? Is that how it works? There, well, there is a joint committee that meets regularly throughout the year, a joint political military group uh, that, that deals with it. But, yes, uh, you, you know that the, the uh, head of the um, Joint Chiefs of Staff was there, the chairman, the others have been there over the last few weeks. There's a constant, ongoing process. The level of military exchange is, is very high. The number of joint visits, the number of meetings in Washington and, and in Israel all of which are geared to assessing what Israel's immediate and uh, longer-term needs uh, would be and, and what the U.S. could do and what Israel has to do. What right. So that the uh, U.S. announced that the fifth fleet off of uh, Iran is equipped now with uh, laser weapons that can take down uh, planes and UAVs or small attack boats and other things that uh, the, Syrians, the Iranians have been using and also that they're going to increase the fifth fleet in the Gulf region from 30 to 40 ships over the next uh, what, uh, five years to 2020 or so. Wow. Uh, these are all very positive messages, right. obviously, and the president's comments, I think, were uh, well accepted by Israel. Uh, last thing about the meeting, about the visit to the United States directly. Uh, there was a, um, uh, there was a, uh, a concerted effort. Uh, on the part of the prime minister in his office, to reach out to certain groups, especially in light of the Iran deal. He met with the Center for American Progress specifically to you know, reach out to those who may not agree with him on everything, let's put it that way, and to ease tension that may have arisen from the Iran deal battle. Any idea if that outreach this week was successful? The outreach to? To the progressive groups, to those who don't always normally agree oh, with well, him. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I think that it uh, that he did a very courageous thing going to to the center, uh, which is known as a progressive place, a liberal place, and he was questioned there. He handled it very well. Uh, he also went to AEI, which is a more conservative place, right. where he also spoke very effectively. I do think it sends a positive message, and it shows number one, he's not afraid to address all audiences in the United States. Two, that it appeals to that very important constituency, which we could loosely describe as the Democratic left where support for Israel is much lower than the center and uh, certainly than on the right. So I think on all counts that that was a positive message. And when the President Obama comes out and, and uh, speaks as he did, that also sends a positive signal. There will always be those who will attack and who will criticize and, you know, some of the 
really ridiculous news coverage that we saw again this week of, of uh, the visit. Uh, I think overall, though, the that is a positive message. Yeah, I mean, it, it could have been, not just in, in optics, it could have been a total failure in general. And I think you have to say that, uh, based on what you just told us, that it's a thumbs up. At least it went well. Simple as that. It went well. well they worked very hard to make sure that it went well. Both It's in both sides' interests. It's also in BB's political interests at home. It's in the president's interest. Congress wants to see the issue. We want to see Israel being sustained as a bipartisan issue. It's not good if it's seen as uh, one party or the other being primarily associated with Israel. Uh, I think on all those counts, uh, that that situation was uh, served uh, over these days. Malcolm Honline, live from Jerusalem. BB says this week, there were a few public statements that he made vis-a-vis uh, Iran and Syria. Uh, took the opportunity, I assume, because of his visit to, to make his position clear on these things. First of all, he said he will not allow Iran to set up a front against Israel in Syria. Now, Frankly, couldn't we say at this point to some degree that Iran, maybe not versus Israel, because maybe that's, he's being very specific, but essentially they have already set up a front in Syria? You could, and they're talking about bringing in tens of thousands of Basijis. They're talking about other uh, support Hamas, uh, through uh, Hamas or Hezbollah troops and others. But I think what he's referring to is the direct threat right. against uh, Israel right. from the Golan uh, and along the Lebanese border, where Hezbollah is obviously based. But the uh, Iranians have talked about um, increasing the attacks on, on the Golan, calling on the forces there to do so. We know that the, they have been very present and uh, lost the general there and others over recent months. Uh, they have had other losses, by the way, in in the fighting in uh, Syria as well. But I think he was specifically talking about something that, that targets um, the, Israel's uh, southern border, northern border right. particularly, and the fighting having encroached in that area gives him good reason to be concerned. Yeah, understood. So, so, uh, so soldiers up there would not necessarily agree with me that that front already exists, as dangerous as it is, and, and watching the buildup that you've described over the last few weeks, they still wouldn't necessarily say that that Iranian front against Israel is already in place in Syria. Right. Okay. The intent is there, right. but I don't think that you could say that there's a, a physical setup that, uh, they, and, and as I pointed out, they've made various attempts at, at it. All right. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org and on the NSN app. And remember, minutes after this conversation ends, you can get the entire conversation in its entirety in the, uh, NS- in the uh, weekly update section of the archive section of the NSN app. App. He also said, the Prime Minister, he will not allow a weapons flow from Iran through Syria, or even from Syria itself, to Hezbollah in Lebanon, obviously was his, uh, uh, was his intent, was what he was referring to. Again, to the casual observer, it seems that this is already happening, <laughs> and it's already in place, and he will not allow it. That's great, but he has allowed it for quite a long time. Am I right that that weapons flow does continue from Iran to Hezbollah through Syria? Well, there are a lot of horses out of that barn, and there has been uh, a build-up of, you know, as you know, 100,000 missiles already in Hezbollah right. territory and probably much more and getting more sophisticated guidance systems for them. Uh, but there are reports that Israel hit an area right outside the Damascus airport 
Israeli planes, that is, that likely was a transshipment point for weapons going to Syria or uh, from Syria to Hezbollah. We know that every day two Russian uh, planes bring in Iranian weapons. Uh, We fear that much of it could go north. Israel will do everything possible to to prevent it. Um, And other countries also have an interest in seeing to it that uh, this is stopped. If you see the Saudi-Iranian tensions are increasingly increasing pretty heavily, and um, the, the, the rivalry within, especially expressed in the talks, where you see Iran and Russia um, versus Saudi Arabia, backed by Qatar, the U.S., uh, most Europeans, uh, but also the, the uh, UAE, etc. So um, Israel is constantly on the alert because every shipment that goes north of uh, the border into Lebanon potentially will find its way against Israel. That's why it's just, I mean, for me to say this is such chutzpah, because what do I have to do with the situation? But, you know, I'm not going to advise the prime minister, but it's sometimes, and I think you've alluded to this also, it's just sometimes a little frustrating when there's a lot of tough talk, and what they're referring to in that tough talk not only is going to happen and potentially could happen, but a lot of it has happened already. And it's sort of like, you know, it, 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 how seriously can these statements be taken if you know you're you're talking about a a strong stand against a build up of weapons or a shipment of weapons from one country to a terrorist group and yet you've seen it all happen already so but you have to put the markers down it's very critical they got to keep being reminded about it because unfortunately we see that the world is not holding them accountable not for the missile launches not for the other violations which is a, a terrible mistake we do see that the Kurds, by the way, are are, are going after ISIS and, and playing a bigger role in Peshmerga in, in Syria and elsewhere, and that despite the, the Russians having been there now for, what, a month and a half or more, and the heavy investments and stuff, it, you don't see that big change. And in fact, our areas where ISIS uh, has made gains, the Kurds' important thing is that they're blocking the road from Raqqa in Syria where they train a lot of the foreign fighters, et cetera, to Mosul in Iraq. And the U.S. planes were aiding the, the Kurds who were, who were fighting there. Some of these things are going to be last stands, you know, where the Azidis are fighting, where others are fighting uh, and um, in Singal. So these, are, these battles are really important. And the, and the question of what arms get in, who, what forces are, are, um, are being activated and are really playing a critical role. And that's why Washington, and that's why Washington may not have a choice, or may find it to be the best idea to send troops to Iraq and fight some of those, and help fight some of those battles. It, it, whether it's it, it probably never a good idea, but it may be necessary, right. as you point out. Right. To you know whether the advisors made a difference or not is certainly questionable. But if you see how the Russians propaganda, read some of their press and stuff, and they talk about Syria. They talk about it as our sacred land. That's right. the term they use. Right. They talk about now uh, it's, it's in imperialistic terms, uh, and it's replaced the Ukraine, which was seen as a humanitarian appeal. This is being seen as a sacred violation, uh, as a, as a, a, a response in, in Syria. I'm talking about right and uh, treated very differently. That raises. For America, the stakes in this, if you see that Russia is not there just to simply keep Assad in power, and it's giving Iran supposedly a seven to eight billion dollar loan now to to uh, for its uh, um, energy industry, which will give them a, a place there, and uh, and a, a very specific agreement, by the way, 
you know, for the United States has to assess all of these things each time and decide where where what is our interest and we we believe we know we know that it certainly doesn't lie with aiding or abetting Iran but Iran is now talking about playing a much larger role in the region and some of it derives from things that they assert from the United States. Does Israel advise on this? I'm not saying the Prime Minister. He doesn't have to do that in this meeting this week. But do they look to Israel for advice on this, what they think about the, uh, uh, you know, what, what's best for the U.S. to do, or that would never happen? I don't know if they look for it, but I assure you they hear it. They do hear it. And, uh, well, this is very vital for Israel. Of course. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. The power, what forces are at play very critical in the fact that Iran, you saw that the Iranians again today started talking about opening embassies, you know, if America apologizes and does all the things that I mentioned before. Well, who wants to open an embassy? Obviously, somebody's talking to them about opening embassies. Right. These, these are all the wrong signals. You've got to send clear-cut things that, that really draw the line in the sand and that we back the Kurds, and the, and the United States is doing it, and I think that there are more positive uh, messages coming because of it. But to know that what the, and the, the reason why I pointed out some of those things earlier is to see that we're not on the same side right. as these other forces. Right, understood. A um, couple of things about these terror attacks. The um, uh, last Shabbos for those, uh, and I'm not close to the situation at all. I'm just I'm I'm saying this as I heard it this week. I'm not close to the situation at all. Uh, but there was a one of the victims in that the sniper attack on Shabbat Chayy Saran Chavron was a teenager from the United States who I. Here is back in the U.S., thank God, and uh, from what we hear is doing well, um, and that's wonderful. But apparently, uh, there was apparently there was no uh, outreach from any American official in Israel uh, to the family when, again, this American citizen, a young American citizen, was the victim of a sniper attack by a terrorist. And I, I, I'm just, I, I found that to be unacceptable, as so many other people did, and I just wanted to verify with you that, in fact, it is, and that in a case like this, normally, someone from the United States government who's in Israel would reach out to the family and express something. It normally, certainly, when an American citizen is involved, right. it would be. Uh, but you remember that the ambassador was with the prime minister in the United States. So there are other uh, staff members, but the ambassador, who's been very sensitive in these areas, and I think uh, seem very positively here, um, what was not here. Yeah, I understand. I just thought the other officials could represent them. Uh, I agree. I right. think I think it's surprising if that did not take place. Yeah, and again, that's just, I'm just going on what I heard, etc. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was this raid on the Al-Hali Hospital, which uh, you know the media is having a field day with, as you can imagine. I have a feeling most of the people in this audience have read about it already, uh, the Israelis raiding and... Uh, and the fatally shooting um, uh, one and uh, arresting another. Um, so, of course, the reaction is that uh, you know hospitals are safe havens. You don't you don't you don't go ahead and carry out uh, uh, um, uh, terror operations or terror quelling operations by taking people out in a hospital. I think this audience needs to know the proper response to that criticism. So, tell us what you say about this news item. Look, I think it's uh, it's. It's a very important issue, but a hospital that allows itself to give safe haven to terrorists, as we saw in Gaza, you remember, where, sure. where rockets were being shot from in there, whether imposed on them or willingly accepted by them. And here you have a, a, somebody who was accused of being involved in a terror attack. They went into arrest, and there was no intention of shooting anybody, but uh, a relative of his came out of, of the bathroom there and it w- started to go toward, uh, against the uh, 
soldiers who were there, right. and they shot him. Right. Uh, unfortunately, he died, and um, and so that was the only casualty. But they took the other one. They went to arrest him. They they had to go in on in the guys that they did because once he gets out of the hospital, they can't trace him. And you you know, hospitals also have a responsibility to protect the other patients there and not to allow terrorists to find safe haven. Yeah. I agree that hospitals have a special status. We don't want to see them bomb. We do, you know, all of the the rights and restrictions that are given to those who, who are engaging in, in hospitals or medical facilities. But there are also limits to it. All right. Most of us forget that caveat, and I think it's important that you reminded us, especially, I'm sure, it'll come up in plenty of conversations for those who want to use the opportunity to criticize the uh, IDF and those and, who... Op- and Nahum, you know what's interesting? Look at the reaction, how everybody's focused on this this terrorist who was captured. Right. The report came out from the Department of Justice yesterday that 23 to 27 young women are killed every year in the United States in honor killings and, and thousands worldwide. And yet you don't see outcry that innocent people are being subjected by their own families to this horrendous uh, treatment and murder. And yet here a terrorist gets caught, and, and they track him down, and they know that he was involved in, in this thing. We, we traced uh, Jihadi Joe uh, in, right. in Iraq and blew him out of the sky from a, by a drone. Okay, admittedly, it's not the same as going into a hospital, but, but you know, terrorists hide within civilian populations, use them as cover, and this is the consequence. It's an unfortunate one. And the media regarding Joe, <laughs> you know, is celebrating. And you'd think, and, you, and you'd think they'd be just as enthusiastic when Israel enters somewhere, even if it's a quote-unquote safe haven, and takes out a killer. You'd think. You would think. Doesn't always happen. But hey, if, if they can, if the EU can adopt the measures that they've adopted this week, here are our, our, you know, Western democracies saying to us, oh, it's not a boycott, we're just labeling it because of a point of interest for consumer protection, it's for all the stuff, and for American administration officials to come out and almost endorse it, or endorse it, and say, well, we don't see settlements as part of Israel. Who who were the American officials? Was that the White House, the State Department, the President? Because well, so, I'm confused by the President's reaction to this. Do you understand that what he was saying regarding this labeling issue? I'm confused. Well, the, the statement by the spokespeople right. of both the State Department and White House was that, you know, that this is a technical guideline. Of what? A guideline to what? No, it, it's a technical guideline, not a boycott. But we know that this is a first step to a boycott. And, and coming on the anniversary of Zionism Racism Resolution, the very day, and coming on the uh, on Kristallnacht the, the day later, and then Kristallnacht's anniversary, right. when we saw what how you know technical boycotts, etc. <laughs> right, this that's is what a I boycott. Mean. This is the first step. Read what the Palestinians say. This is the beginning. It's to a boycott of all of Israeli products. It's not just of uh, of the West Bank and that the the fact that they label products. They said, well, America also requires them to say product of the West Bank. But it, but the EU goes a step further and says you have to say whether it's a Jewish product or an Arab product. Right. I mean, this is ridiculous, and tens of thousands of Palestinians will be put out of work because of it. And and if people wonder why, you know, do we care? The economic impact may be de minimis. If one or two percent of the Israel's product, et cetera, et cetera, all the figures that people can read about in in the paper. But that's the significance goes beyond the economic to the political, psychological, the sense of isolation. This 
discriminatory attitude, the fact that no other area under dispute of the hundreds in the in the world is subjected to the same kind of, of discriminatory policy. Yeah, that's for sure. That's why I was frustrated when I asked, what does technical guidelines mean? I don't even understand. I don't even understand what that side means by that phrase. I don't even know if they know what well, it means. Well, it's a cover, you know. It's a, yeah, I understand. A, 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 a but, I, but, I can't, but I can't even understand what it's a cover for. Like, what, what technical aspect they're, they're, they're using it to cover it. Anyway. Well, they're saying, look, it's not a law. We're not, we're not banning the products. We're not saying you can't bring it in, which is true, but they're saying that they have to be be uh, labeled so that you know where they are, to, and then the consumer has the choice whether to buy that product or not. As Well, they always have that choice. As we speak, a shooting attack this afternoon near Utniel in the South Hebron Hills. Three people wounded. Their vehicles were attacked on Route 60, two in critical condition, one lightly wounded, and the terrorist has escaped the scene. We have that in mind. In addition, uh, you know what happened here, uh, Crown Heights, uh, about a week ago. I think it was a week ago, maybe more. I, mean, I can't remember anymore, what, one day to the next. Uh, we heard this week about an Orthodox man in Milan who was stabbed by a Muslim. Uh, you're sitting in Israel. Uh, you are uh, certainly... Uh, very much in tune with what's going on in Israel, and we are all concerned about what's going on in Israel, but sometimes we forget that a lot of this is being duplicated around the world. And um, while we are focused on solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Israel because of the Matzav, quote-unquote, I think it's important to remember that some of these things are happening right in our own backyard. And we should not attribute it to, to it's unrelated to the uh, issues here, just as the boycott and the, uh, the, the uh, terror that we see here, these attacks are not related to settlements, are not happening in those areas, and that it has become much more of a religious war that Abbas has instituted, etc. But I will tell you that I was standing on 41st and 3rd being interviewed by CBS television outside uh, near our offices in a place where the governor is located. Other people heavily traveled in midday, and a guy walked up right behind me and yelled, burn the Jews. Broad daylight, and nobody stopped. Nobody cared. Nobody even reacted to it. And uh, you know, these attacks are, are not being orchestrated necessarily by you know. It's not a central command that goes out over the internet and says it. They are constantly instigating and, and educating them on how to carry out attacks. But the very fact that this is the way that people are giving expression and that it becomes commonplace that this, this kind of violence takes place is, is what is very uh, disturbing. And Malcolm, I hate to say this, but, I, but you'll understand what I mean. Could you imagine what the reaction would have been or would not have been if that same man behind you would have had a knife? I don't even know how people, God forbid, I don't know how people would have or would not have reacted to that. Well, I will tell you that, that I did not even have a chance to say anything but security people called me up afterwards. They were very concerned for exactly that reason. It yeah. would have taken nothing. It was well-dressed person, not, uh, you know, completely uh, something one would not have anticipated. I mean, the good news is that we see that Americans' view of Israel remains very high. There was another couple of polls this week, in the, and it's equal to France. It's very popular. We see even in Britain that only 12% support the BDS movement, even though it... it, it, it that was one of the centers of origin, and um, and the, the biggest number uh, uh, opposed the boycott and, and any kind of boycott of Israel. But 
what we're what we're seeing is the undermine uh, these these uh, undercurrents, which are becoming more blatant, and people feel that they can act with greater uh, ease and, and freedom. Yeah. And it's it's not because law enforcement doesn't care. It's it's something you can't capture when it's just happening, popping up in a place on a street. Yeah. And and and, know, and back and, and the model remember goes back. ISIS beheading people. Of course. When the knives came out. Of course. And you said we're going to be immune to it in 10 minutes. We were immune to it in 10 minutes, and now we're immune to this in 10 minutes. And um, I, and I said that this would become the model, that right. they would copy it. Exactly. And then we saw in a dozen countries, they started copying it because it, it's the greatest recruitment tool. The um, on, on, With the episode that you cited uh, that happened to you, I want to add two things. First of all, if you watch the videos... These knives come out real fast, no matter who's taking them out, men, women, or children. They come out real fast, and and some of them against Israeli soldiers, you know, people who are really prepared for this type of thing, and it happens very, very quickly. And the second thing is, did you see the age of some of those involved in these knifing and these stabbing attacks this week? Could you imagine 12, 13, 14 years old, and they're embarking on this type of activity? And where are the parents being held to account? Mm. There has to be some sense of responsibility. I'm not saying every parent can control what every kid does, but I think that, that if the parents knew and, and are held to account that there would be, uh, and, and that they trace where, what the source of inspiration, who was behind it, who, who talked to this kid, did they just really pull it out of thin air and all of a sudden decide because they read about it happening someplace that a junior goes out and stabs a kid on a bicycle? I mean, come on, it's not... It, it, they're, they're, and the fact that uh, he might walk without going to jail yep. is there has to be punishment. There has to be people have to see a consequence for it. And and it's a general mood in the world that has to say we're going to cut off anybody who's involved in it, anybody who supports it, anybody who who tolerates it. And <laughs> ISIS obviously is is a core center, and you know harder action against them. But when we hear some of the statements coming from other leaders where they, they talk about Israel as not being a legitimate state, where they talk about, you know, uh, or denying Jews' rights, it, it, and you see whether the election in Turkey, which could have serious consequences, and some of the statements made by, by Erdogan, who, whether he won legitimately or not, um, <laughs> it, it spreads. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Finally, you know, you alluded to this in, in one of our earlier segments. It, it, you know, you. It is so important to keep in mind that every excuse, that every a reason that's given for the violence is is completely invalid. And you'll see what I'm saying in a second. Martin Indyk, and I don't know you. You've sort of described how you feel about how he says things publicly over the years. But okay, that notwithstanding, he 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 says publicly that the PA president Mahmoud Abbas could be a partner for peace tomorrow if Israel would freeze the settlements. Number one, I mean, <laughs> you know, I would say at this point, de facto or not, Israel essentially has frozen the settlements, especially to a large degree, but whatever. We could talk about whether that's official or not. And secondly, again, providing a reason for the enemy to go ahead and carry out attacks. And when, believe you me, if settlements were frozen officially forever, it wouldn't help anyway. Uh, number one, we had a 10-month freeze, remember? Number two, there's a, there is essentially currently freezes in place. Right. And number three, Abbas has made very clear that that is not the criteria. He's not interested in negotiations. He has turned this into a religious war, the constant 
charge of committing war crimes and going to the Hague and, and talking about changing the status quo in the Temple Mount. Read what some of the enlightened Palestinians, Basim Talil, Basim Ali, the others are saying about it. They don't take the same position. they saying that, that uh, Abbas is telling them it's their duty to defend the holy places and they should rise up and anybody and all the promises of the rewards for those who fall for, for defending this. And they, they um, as one of them said, you know, welcome to, to the world of the Palestinians where we lie and then we believe our own lies. And then we want the rest of the world to believe them too. Yep. So, you know, the fact that people fall into this trap to say all of a sudden, whether it's because they have to justify all their past positions or advocacy for points of view, if there was any evidence of this, the president made clear he knows there's not going to be a Palestinian state in his term. He made that clear this week again. But he also put the onus where it belongs in saying that the Palestinians are responsible for this wave of terror and for, this, for the breakdown of any chance. And Netanyahu again said he supported a two-state solution, even though, you know, that politically doesn't sit well with some of the parties in his coalition. So, the you know, people can assert whatever they want, but there's no hard evidence to indicate that this is true. Boy, oh boy. Will you have a chance to see the Prime Minister during this trip? I hope to. Malcolm Honline, live from Jerusalem. I wish you a, a wonderful Shabbat. You know, by the way, what I said earlier is true. Your candle lighting is like right around the corner, within minutes, right? I'm busy. I'm ready to make Kiddush. <laughs> Essentially, my gosh, it's so early over there. I think like 4 o'clock yeah, or so. It's in uh, 4.06, I think. 4.06, my goodness. The panic that's going through me just hearing those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. There he is, Malcolm Honline from Jerusalem, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We call this the Weekly Update.